we always do the right thing, our employees come first. And when we look at it that way, we build out that great culture as a base. That then leads to great service, which I which I alluded to before, when we take care of our staff nurses and the folks that take care of our patients, that will double in returns in terms of patient care, safety, and quality. So if we have the right culture in place through the right leadership and employee engagement, then we have the right service. How does a new healthcare company with multiple clinical sites continue to pivot and grow after launching just before the COVID-19 pandemic? Let's talk all about it with Charity Cox Hayden, the Chief Nursing Officer of Atlas Healthcare Partners, right here on episode 363 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey everyone, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you, your personal professional development, your career, and the healthcare system writ large. And I'm here to share education, ideas, inspiration, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people out there. I love having you along for the ride and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And here's a special request. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to become a patron and support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Creating over 400 episodes all told incurs a lot of costs. And for as little as $2 a month, you can show your support to the show. You can always listen for free, of course, on Apple Podcasts or any other app out there. But please consider becoming a patron or you can refer yourself, your next door neighbor, your gerbil, anyone for career coaching with me at nursekeith.com. Just email me at keith at nursekeith.com to schedule a complimentary chat, even for the gerbil. And if you mention Atlas Healthcare Partners or the show or Charity Cox Hayden, you can get 15% off your first coaching package. So as I said, we are joined by Charity Cox Hayden of Atlas Healthcare Partners. And Charity, it's great to have you here. And there's a lot to talk about right now. We're recording this on the very last day of February, 2022. So when this episode comes out, we'll have just passed the two-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic. And you all launched Atlas Healthcare Partners in 2019, right, right before the pandemic hit our shores. That's right. So tell me one reflection you have on starting a new company in the healthcare sector when something completely unprecedented happened not long after you started it. <laughs> well, I, uh, I, I agree with you. That was, uh, that was a very interesting time to be starting a healthcare company, just having launched on January 1 and then having just a, a little over a year behind us um, with a new company that's rapidly growing, you know, its footprint in the ambulatory care market. I'd say one of the biggest things that I reflect on when I look back on these last couple of years um, over the COVID pandemic and just knowing what we know now, one of the things that really strikes me is the resiliency that we've seen from the folks that we work with every day. As we went through this pandemic for the last couple of years, we've continued to grow at a very rapid pace, uh, you know, establishing more and more ambulatory surgery centers in partnership with, uh, with Banner. And uh, our team didn't seem like they ever missed a beat. I'm sure behind the scenes, you know, quite a few people were, were uh, you know, uh, wondering what was happening out there, but I, I really have 
have to speak to the nurses and the, you know, our physicians and the nurses, but the resiliency that I saw from my teammates, I think is really probably the key factor in what brought us through. I also think the fact that we were only a year into it, you know, everybody still had, uh, you know, a very, uh, a very new focus, a new outlook on the company. And so I think that helped us as well um, to come together and uh, a lot of communication, a lot of transparency from our company to the teams and then from them back to us. Um, so communication and transparency, I think is, is probably the two things that I just marvel at how we were able to, to do that and, and still be where we are today, you know, just over three years later. Wow. I can't yeah. imagine. I mean, you you launched a company that focuses on ambulatory surgery, correct? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. So outpatient and, surgery, if you will, outside of the hospital setting. Yes. And you're currently in Arizona and Colorado? Yeah, that's accurate. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Two states that border my state of New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. So launching ambulatory surgery at a time when the pandemic hit just a little over a year after you launched, you had to do a lot of pivoting, I'm assuming. Yeah, no, absolutely. We did have to do a lot of pivoting. Ambulatory Surgery Center, by definition, um, is very different from the hospital setting. Um, it's uh, much less acute care and much more focused on the patient um, coming into the surgery center and leaving the same day. The difference that we don't see, though, is the amount of uh, preparation work that has to go into preparing for these patients to come in. And I would say the pivoting, uh, what was interesting about that and what I thought was was what I really appreciated seeing from our team is if you'll if you'll remember that during that especially during that first year to 18 months, there was a constant change in information that was coming out from our from our healthcare leaders, from our federal governments, our state governments. And so we were working very hard to keep up with those changes. And um, what I would say is that um, having to pivot so much and having to communicate to the patients and keep up that communication to them and then having to, um, you know, make changes to our visitation structure, you know, in ambulatory surgery center, people, you know, they, they, uh, they get dropped off and, and their patients, family members usually stay with them. And so having to do all that pivoting really required a lot of, um, a lot of communication from our team, but it also required a lot of keeping up, right, with what was going on out there and what was going to be the safest for our patients. And, um, you know, a lot of our staff folks, a lot of our nurses and our physicians, you know, people just didn't know what was going on. And so we, uh, we had to keep everybody up to date on what was happening and what was going to be safe. So, you know, temperature checks and, and visitation attestations and, and so on and so forth all at the same time was, was quite the undertaking. But um, our patients and our, and our family members, I think, really appreciated the extra work that we went to, to, to make them safe. And also our staff folks, you know, uh, masking, different types of masking. So it was, it was definitely a lesson in pivoting, to your point, to use that word again, um, and learning how to be agile, reactive, flexible, um, you know, so, and then after we got through that first, um, first round, then you started to see those other waves that came through. And so we also had our folks, you know, our team members that themselves were caring for family members that were ill or they themselves were ill. And so, um, you know, then you have, uh, you have the labor issues that come along with that when you have people that are out ill uh, themselves or they're out caring for family members. We also saw all the schools closed out, right? A lot of, all of our schools closed out here and in Arizona. And so we had uh, major disruptions in the staffing uh, at the centers and we had to, to work our way through that as 
well. So I think that um, it just has been, it's been a really challenging time, but a great time to be a nurse, a great time to be a healthcare provider, um, you know, to have a pandemic that we haven't seen in any of our lifetimes, for, for sure. Exactly. And the pivoting yeah. had to happen on, you know, you had the personal level, right? Because you had right. everybody has families and children or elderly parents or whatever, right? Uh-huh. And then right. you have the the financial pivoting for the company, because I'm sure revenue was kind of up and down and all over the place because things kept closing and opening. And then you have staffing and, and all the other issues and public relations, you know, and you're coming from the place of you earned your BSN from Indiana university in 2001. And you have an MBA from Keller Graduate School of Management. That was back in 2013. Correct. And you worked 20 years in critical care and periop. So you've you've kind of you've been around. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And in critical care, tell us about your work in critical care. Was that ICU, PCU? You know, it was actually CVICU. Um, when I got out of school in 2001, um, I was in the Midwest, obviously, Indiana University. And at that time, um, which isn't a lot different from a lot of the time um, in history with nursing, but at that time, there was also a shortage of nurses. And I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, go on to our local community hospital as a new grad into the CVICU, which is essentially open heart recovery. And so, yeah, no, it was an, it was an incredible experience. Um, And I spent the first five years of my career in CVICU learning how to care for those critically ill patients and then um, really got the bug then for the operating room. So decided to to go over and see what it was like to work in the operating room. And of course, I went to CVOR and worked in the uh, open heart OR for a while and moved Mm -hmm. out into the main area uh, and got the uh, hospital experience and then moved out to the outpatient space in about 2008 or so. So definitely have seen quite a bit. you know, over the last 20, almost 21 years now at this point in time. Yeah. Yeah. So you're bringing as a CNO, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you have executive experience and you have Mm -hmm. an MBA, right? You've Mm -hmm. been around, but you also have all those years working in critical care and periop. So you, you understand it from the inside and from the executive managerial slash leadership perspective. So you can wear a lot of lenses or look through a lot of lenses when you're kind of assessing what's going on with your staff and your your facilities. As chief nursing officer, and you have multiple sites, what's it like to oversee a, you know, a fairly large robust organization in that respect? And how do you keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening? Because a lot of listeners might be people who want to be leaders, or maybe they already are leaders, or Mm -hmm. maybe they want to head deeper and higher into leadership. So what's it like to be at that level as a nurse? Right. Um, well, I think what I would say first and foremost is I, I, I appreciate your, um, your knowledge of having done all that and then having, uh, you know, gotten that frontline staff, uh, that frontline staff nursing role. One thing that's been really unique about my career that I think has, has helped, um, has helped me to get to where I am today, if you will, has been that throughout all of this, um, I, you know, I, 
the CNO role that I took on at Atlas um, three years ago was the first time that I had been at that executive level. And even still today, Keith, believe it or not, I still do go out and do not as much, but but still go out and do some direct patient care. Hmm. So I think that's a really interesting part of, of what makes it work. So when you ask what it's like to be at this level, um, the, the direct answer to that question is it takes a lot of organization, but even more than the organization, I think what it takes is a lot of team building. So when I talk about team building, we do have, um, you know, we've grown, we started with eight sites in 2019 and we're now at, I believe, 25 sites. So three years later, we basically tripled the number of sites that we've had. Um, but I work very hard to maintain um, excellent relationships with the leaders and the staff at those facilities, but particularly with the directors of nursing at those facilities. That's the, that's the person that's in charge at our facilities of all of the clinical safety and quality. And actually the labor and the staffing is the director of nursing. So we work very hard to um, have a good relationship with our directors of nursing. But we also work very hard to remember that those directors of nursing and those uh, those staff nurses and all of the clinical folks and the non-clinical folks, those are all our customers, right? Those are our job is to take care of them so that they can take care of our patients and our physicians. And I think that's that's one thing that I've learned um, in the last three years is having to Really remember, um, you know, when you're when you're in a leadership role, your customer changes just a little bit. Your customer then becomes the people that are taking care of the patients, as opposed to you being the person that directly cares for those patients. But I think you have to bring the same level of commitment and dedication to caring for those folks, especially as we were talking earlier, especially during these times, right? These times that we've been through in the last two, almost two and a half years, uh, we really have to focus on making sure that we take care of those relationships and we build good relationships with those um, centers. The bigger you get, then you have to scale that, right? The bigger you get, the harder that it, it can become, right? To be able to take care of that many people. But we set it up so that we have very frequent communications um, directly with the leaders who uh, at those facilities who takes care of our patients. Um, so a very, very open, transparent relationship. I also think the other thing is I think you have to be authentic, right? Um, people can tell if you're not being authentic and you're not being transparent with them. Yeah. And particularly nurses, um, I think, are um, very aware when they're when they're uh, their leadership, particularly their chief nursing officer, has their best interest at heart and is working mm -hmm. every day to make sure that their their best interest is what's being focused on, knowing that if we focus on the nurses and we focus on the employees, then the patient care will improve, certainly. Safety and quality will improve. So well said. Well yeah, said. Thank and, you. And you have an operating model that is based on four basic um, pillars or layers and Correct. culture is, you call it the bedrock and then you have service and then growth and then profitability. And yeah. I've heard this expressed in many different ways. Like I've heard the triple bottom line, you know, I've heard all these different types of um, ways of constructing a model of operations. So uh -huh. what is it about culture that you find is most important workplace culture mm -hmm. and how is it for you as a nurse and an executive mm -hmm. to create a culture from, from the, like from day one, like right. what, a, what a gift to create a culture and not walk into one that's already like steeped in all sorts of dysfunction. You got to create yeah. it. 
Yeah, no. And I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually, this is the first time in my career that I've been able to do that. I've always walked into a culture that was already existing, mm-hmm. you know, a hospital culture, obviously is many years old when you walk into it and you certainly have less influence, um, you know, to, to influence the culture of an organization when you're a staff nurse at the bedside, but you do have the opportunity to influence your own workspace culture. But, you know, when you walk in here and you realize that you're just starting a company and you have the opportunity to create the culture, it's a very, uh, it feels very monumental initially. It feels like a very, um, it's just such an important thing because you know the actions that you take are going to help to build that that culture. So when we look at the culture, we looked at, thank you for bringing up the operating model. We say that the bedrock of our model is culture. um, And we focus there first because we believe that, um, we look at two things when we look at culture. We look at great leadership and we look at employee engagement. We feel like those are the two pieces of the bedrock of our culture, if you will, side by side. We need to have that great leadership that we talked about. And we also need to have solid employee engagement. If we have those two things and we're working every day to strive to get the culture built out that way of, you know, we, we, we always do the right thing, our employees come first. And when we look at it that way, we build out that great culture as a base that then leads to great service, which I which I alluded to before, when we take care of our staff nurses and the folks that take care of our patients, that will double in returns in terms of patient care, safety, and quality. So if we have the right culture in place through the right leadership and employee engagement, then we have the right service and we provide good safety and quality. And then of course, the last two pillars there, which are just as important, obviously, um, you know, having great culture leads to great service. Having great service leads to growth, and of course, growth leads to profitability. And so they all build upon one another. And profitability is important, let's face it, because otherwise we can't hire people. We can't give them raises. We can't provide what we need for our staff and our patients. So, you know, profitability has to get figured in there because healthcare is a business. I mean, it's just the way it is in our country and in the society, isn't it? Mm -hmm. No, it for sure is. But when we look at that, um, you know, one of the biggest things when you look at your profitability, right, one of the biggest things that you see that anyone looks at on their on their bottom line, right, is the labor, the labor component of your profitability has a lot to do with it. So we have to be um, we have to be very um, astute in our, you know, in how we take care of our staff folks, because retention is a big part of it turnover is extremely costly. So we feel if we have the right culture in place, and we talked about that employee engagement, you drive down some of those staffing costs by decreasing your turnover, which is done by, if you almost will, if you go back down the, the, you know, the bottle, right to the bottom, to the culture, you don't have a good culture in place. You're not going to retain staff and your costs are going to be not something that can be sustained. certainly won't lend to the profitability of the company, which is Mm -hmm. why we really stand by the fact that our employees come first when we're looking at, you know, our culture, the culture of our company and how important it is um, as a part of our overall growth and profitability strategy. Right. And if culture is the base, right, if that's where we work from, and if we look at the rigors and stressors and vicissitudes of the pandemic, then we have the things that everybody seems to be talking about lately, which is stress, burnout, work-life balance, moral injury. You know the drill, right? Mm -hmm. So what's important to you? What's paramount for you when it comes to those challenges facing nurses? And how do we make sure they're okay Mm -hmm. and that we keep them and we keep them because they want to work for us 
and they feel valued and taken care of. I mean, that's pretty basic, but (laughs) super important, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It sounds basic, right? But it's not so basic Mm -hmm. in everyday operation, for sure. When we look at, you know, I think uh, nursing has a long history of um, you know, being a, a difficult job to work in and sustain over the long term, right? It's uh, anybody that goes into the patient care profession or the service profession um, that deals with people, particularly sick people on a day-to-day basis, certainly um, faces the rigors of stress and burnout. But to your point, you know, having the pandemic then on top of it all has really, really, as we've seen, we've all seen, it's been all over the news that, you know, there's certainly a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, uh, attrition out there from our nursing teams. But when you ask me what's most important to me when it comes to keeping our nurses, I would say um, probably the the health, the, the mental health and emotional well-being of our nurses is one of the things that I try to focus a lot on, especially as we come to a point in this pandemic where we're not pivoting so much and we're not having to spend so much of our time going back and forth over what's you know the right way to take care of patients, the right way to take care of our staff. Now is a time for to really look back and reflect um, on the the factors that are influencing the burnout in our nurses, right? And you and you alluded to some of them: excessive workloads, unmanageable work schedules, staffing ratios. Um, but there's you know there's there's other things too. Um, you know the uh, the minimal resources for professional well being. I think is something that our company works very hard on to provide those resources to our nurses, but. One of the most important things when we're looking at it is how do we stay connected to the nurses so that we know what's going on with our nursing teams? You know, you don't want to wait to see safety and quality fall off to find out that there's something wrong, um, you know, with your frontline teams. So when we look at some of the most important things now that we're, um, you know, three years into the company and two years of the pandemic behind us, um, we really want to start to look at how we're taking care of our nurses' psychological and emotional well-being so that they're not suffering from this. We certainly are doing other things. We're looking at the staffing ratios. Um, I think everybody in the country is looking at the staffing ratios now. There's Aren't a lot they? of they are, and there's a you know there's a lot of agency staff out there that are, you know, we 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 uh, they certainly help us a lot. But there's a um, you know. Uh, a point there where even sometimes that becomes, um, you know, challenging. And I think about those nurses as well that are going from place to place, you know, that are coming into our centers. And that's and not easy. No, that's not easy for them. They yeah. have a different uphill battle to climb. And we still, you know, we still ask those people to come in and take care of our patients. So, okay. um, yeah, yes. you know, so I think looking at those factors influencing burnout, um, you know, and you mentioned moral injury, moral injury is actually one of the factors in, in burnout um, that I, I, uh, I really want to take a look at with our nursing teams, make sure that we're, we're uh, looking at it, assessing it to the degree that we can and helping to try to mitigate some of those things that are going on for them. Yeah, well said. And when we come back from the break, I'd like to dig a little deeper into these concepts of moral injury and your um your take on incivility and lateral violence, also called horizontal violence Mm -hmm. or bullying, because you've been a nurse for all these years. So I think I'm sure you have some opinions and experiences that inform how you approach it as a leader. Mm -hmm. So when we come back, I'd like to dig a little bit more into that and then talk a little bit more about Atlas Healthcare Partners and what your vision is for the future. How's that sound? That sounds great. Okay. Okay. So hang in there with us, everyone. And we will be right back for the second half of episode 363 of the Nurse Keith Show. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. 
please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit, so you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, those are my sincere asks today. So now, Let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. Remember, the show notes will be located at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 363. You can learn all about Atlas Healthcare Partners and Charity Cox Hayden. And Charity, I'm glad you're here with us. And it's so nice to have you here and to have connected before this so we could talk about Atlas and your experiences in your career. And, you know, we were talking before about culture and how that has to be the bedrock of, or you've chosen for it to be the bedrock of your organization, which I think is super smart. And especially the prescience of knowing, not knowing that the pandemic was coming and that having a solid culture is really important. And I'd like to get your take on what some of us characterize as the scourge of bullying and incivility or lateral slash horizontal violence in nursing. And from your perspective as a clinician and as an executive and a leader and as a human being and a woman, you know, what do you think? Like, what's your perspective on why this is such a huge issue in nursing? Well, I, I do. Um, I do obviously have, um, you know, over the last 20 years, I've seen uh, I've seen varying degrees of this. Um, I have experienced it myself, of course, um, you know, over over my nursing career. What I would say is, um, you know, I think and I think how I would say this is I think it's gotten better. I think certain parts of it have gotten better, but I think other parts of it may not have gotten better at this point in time. You know, there's historically been. Um, uh, you know, sometimes a difficult relationship uh, between physicians and nurses, obviously. And I think that's a part that I think has really gotten better um, from my own perspective. And as I said, I do still get out to the patient care areas. I do still try to get into the operating room. The operating room um, is an area in which you can really see, um, you know, areas where it's uh, 
there's a higher likelihood of uh, lateral uh, bullying, um, you know, harassment, those types of things, because the patient's not awake, right? The patient's asleep mm. in the operating room. So you certainly can see that. It's also a very high stress time for the, for the surgeons that are operating. So when I look at that and I look at what I see today for the nurses compared to what it was like for me when I came out of uh, nursing school 20 years ago, CBICU and then in CBOR, I do think that's gotten better. What I think we still have a lot of work to do, though, is in almost in the team, uh, almost in the teams that are working together, especially in these high stress situations that we've seen these last couple of years. Um, when you think about um, incivility and, uh, you know, we do see incivility more often than I'd like. Um, we know how that's described as, you know, just, you know, not saying good morning to somebody or, you know, just kind of keeping your head down and doing your own thing. Um, I think we still we still have that. I also think we see some of those. Um, uh, microaggressions, if you will, you know, the rolling of the eyes and the yes. loud sounds and those types of things. Yes. Yeah. So um, I think what I would say about it is, uh, especially where I stand today, one of the, uh, you know, we have uh, we have the operating model that you've talked about with the culture, service, growth, profitability, and then our mission statement. But one thing that I would really, uh, I think we rely on heavily at our company is uh, values. So we have five values at Atlas Healthcare Partners that are part of our mission statement, right? And those are integrity, culture, surprisingly, not surprisingly, teamwork, respect, and results. So one of the, uh, you know, when we put the values together, being a new organization, those of us that were here from the beginning got to help build out that mission statement and got to help build out the values and the values that we were going to live by. And when we look at the values, I told you the value is respect, right? We, we are always being, we will always be humble and kind. And so that's a model that we hold our staff to and that we hold our physicians to. And there's absolutely zero tolerance for any type of um, you know, aggressive behavior within our institutions. However, you're not on the floor every day, right? We're not all out there with the nurses every day. And so we don't always know what's happening. So what we have to do is we have to communicate through our code of conduct, through our constant transparency and communication, how important Atlas takes this so that people feel comfortable bringing that forward. You can't deal with a situation unless somebody brings it forward. So I won't be so... Um, I won't go so far as to say I don't think it happens. I think it does happen. I do think that we've got a lot of structures in place to mitigate that happening and also to deal with it happening. And that's what I think um, I haven't seen in some of, you know, some of my past um, places that I've been is, is not a good way of dealing with it when it does happen. People get stressed. It still happens. But mm -hmm. I think you have to have that, you know, you have to have, you have to be prepared to deal with it and to have zero tolerance for it and just mm -hmm. consistently have zero tolerance for that. Yeah, you know, we often hear these stories of there being what some might call a, a queen bully, right? Who mm -hmm. sort of, she's super, super experienced. She's actually a great nurse. She's a great clinician. And she's been around a long time. And administration is maybe afraid of her because she she has a lot of power and they may feel intimidated by her themselves and they may also feel like you know we, i've heard it said oh she's a great nurse mm -hmm. and that's just the way she is right and we can't really make excuses for this type of behavior because if we really want to model respect and humility and all those values that 
you have in your value system and your the mission and, mm-hmm. and vision of your organization, we can't go with those, you know, path of least resistance at at this with this particular type of situation. We can't we can't allow that stuff to stand, can we? No, we can't. And I think, um, you know, when because I've seen that, um, we've all seen that type of behavior, if anybody's mm-hmm. been a nurse uh, for any mm-hmm. length of time. And I think even our new graduates, um, right, that come into our institutions, I think, um, still experience those same things that some of our more seasoned nurses do. So we've all seen those people that have been around for a long time. And they are great uh, clinicians. But when you look at it, um, when you create an environment um, that is um, in any way toxic, you really take down the patient safety and quality, right, that we are looking for. So that's that's another reason why we can't allow it. We certainly can't allow it because we have a zero tolerance policy and we have to keep our employees' uh, physical, mental, and emotional health top of mind, as I alluded to earlier. So certainly that's not an environment that anybody wants to work in for a very uh any length of time. But I think we also have to make, um, I take it very seriously what the environment and the um, the areas that our nurses and our scrub techs and, and any other clinicians are providing care in, whether it's with a physician or it's with another employee, mm-hmm. it certainly has a very detrimental effect on patient care and safety. And so mm-hmm. if we're going to, you know, our mission statement is that we provide exceptional care and outstanding customer service to every patient, every physician, every time. We can't provide exceptional care, so we can't meet our mission statement if we're if we're allowing that type of behavior to continue, because it will be detrimental to the nurse, which then um, or or the other clinician, and it will certainly then flow over to the patients. Patients can tell those types of things when they when they are in an an, an environment that is that is not a good environment. I think patients can certainly tell that. Um, the other thing I wanted to add um, that I think is really important is to keep, uh, you know, we survey our employees. Um, we survey them once on an annual basis. It's our employee engagement survey. And so we have some questions that are on our survey that help to uh, give people an outlet, um, you know, to express that to us. If they're not, some people aren't comfortable, you know, going to their manager or, um, you know, some other way. But we we survey our folks annually once a year with a very uh, pretty good sized um, employee engagement survey. And then a couple of times a year, we do some surveys where we do some what we call pulse checks, right? On what's going on out in the institutions, what's going on. Um, And one of the questions on every survey is the respect that those people are, uh, with that being one of our values, the respect that those people are feeling in their environment. So I think Mm -hmm. uh, keeping in communication with people um, at 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 least three times a year is helpful in addition to training you know, we talked about that culture. We talked about that leadership, as well as training our leaders how to um, how to address and how to respond and address to those types of situations. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's very very important. And I think keeping your finger on the pulse of what people are actually thinking is mm-hmm. really important. And if you're surveying them three times a year, hopefully you're getting enough um, clear, honest answers from people that you're you're really getting a picture of what's really happening out there on the floor because like you said you can't be there you you have to i mean you need information in order to respond and without the information you don't know what's happening right and it's sort of like in nursing yeah how we say um you know if you didn't write it down it didn't happen well if you don't report it 
no one's going to know about it and it'll be like, it never happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And you know, you have to be careful with people, obviously um, people could easily mm-hmm. get survey fatigue. I've seen that True. you don't want to survey people too much. Um, so as I said, the, the survey that we do annually is a more robust survey and the survey we do on the two pulse checks is, you know, three or four questions, just mm-hmm. it's a pulse survey. Right. Um, the other thing that I think is good is um, that I think helps us is we also do, we, we put a lot of emphasis on leader rounding and we also mm-hmm. Uh, lead by example. So we ask our leaders um, at all levels of an organization to do uh, leader rounding and to do employee rounding. Uh, and, you know, they should be doing that daily. And I think most of our leaders do. They certainly go around and check the pulse of their of their centers every day. But we also have to live up to the same, uh, we have to live up to those same requirements, right? So we also do, uh, particularly in our department, the clinical services department, we go out and do senior leader rounding. Um, we try to be on site or in touch with our DONs as much as possible and certainly be available for those people. So I think that you have to establish that presence out in the facilities. Um, we certainly could do better. We can always do better in terms of the amount, um, you know, facilities that we have. Um, But I think just establishing, again, establishing that connection, particularly with your director of nursing at those sites is really beneficial. If you have a better relationship with people, they're certainly going to be much more prone to come and talk with you um, about some concerns that they have. Yeah. 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 And speaking of leadership, for a nurse out there who is interested in being a leader, what would you recommend, you know, say it's a nurse with a bachelor's degree and maybe they've been charged and, um, you know, they, they get mm-hmm. involved at the workplace. If they're really interested in leadership, what would you suggest based on your experience? What should they do to go about forging that path for themselves? Do they have to get a degree or other things they can do before they, you know, hop into a, a degree program? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think that people necessarily have to get a degree. A degree certainly doesn't hurt. It dep- It certainly depends on what kind of leadership you want to be in. I um, went into my first leadership position. You know, I got my bachelor degree in 2001 and I went into my first leadership position uh, without any kind of higher education. I didn't go back and get my MBA until long after I had entered into that. And I did that, you know, kind of um, entered into a, you know, department director level and then went from there. I think. Um, when you're thinking about a leadership position, I think you have to really, um, uh, you know, a charge nurse position is a good place to start. Um, I always encourage people um, that want to become leaders to become experts in their field, right? So become experts in the area that you want to lead in. So um, find out about the leadership role that you want to be in. So if you want to be, um, we have a, um, we have a, we're, working on a program, I won't say that it's rolled out at this point, but we're working on a program, Program, excuse me, where we um, we like to look at talent mapping and we like to look at, um, you know, how the center is doing and what are, what is the interest level from people at those centers that may want to progress into a higher leadership position because it's great to get a leader from um, somebody that you already know that's, you know, a person in your facility. So I think when people want to become a leader, I think, Try to determine the role that you want to move into next and then get to know that role. Get to know what's required from that role. That makes sense. Um, you know, you know, if somebody wanted to become, let's say somebody was a, a 
an OR manager or a pre-op PACU manager and they wanted to move up to the next level, which for us is director of nursing, the best thing you can do is find out everything you can about what it means to be a director of nursing and right. then start working on the things that you are aware that you don't know as part of that leadership position. And you'll certainly be in a much stronger position to negotiate somebody taking a chance on somebody that doesn't have a previous leadership background. Because let's face it, no one had a previous leadership background when they started. I didn't. Good point. Right? Um, so that's what we encourage. I also think that, um, you know, one thing we do here at Atlas is we are um, trying to, uh, you know, we implemented what's called a DON buddy system, if you will, um, where we have, we have leaders that come in with varying levels of experience, um, some that have several years of being a director of nursing and some that have promoted up and don't have any experience being a director of nursing. And so we've put in place a buddy program um, that helps to get um, after those people get out of their formal orientation and they have somebody that's a colleague, not necessarily a manager that can help them um, with their day-to-day -day operations and be successful in that first 90 days. And like then, um, yeah, yeah. And then also working on a DON mentorship program to help those people that want to aspire to that. So um, it's, it's always great to be in an organization that supports that. Um, but for those people, um, that maybe are not, and you know, hopefully organizations always support promoting from within, but that's probably my best piece of advice is understand the role that you want to aspire to and make sure you know everything about the, almost everything about that role. Certainly you can't know the day-to-day -day nuances of a role, but you certainly should know, you know, at least the top three things that role is responsible for and, and be sure you're comfortable with learning that and uh, yeah. taking on that level of responsibility. Yeah. And I often suggest to clients and nurses I chat with, is that, you know, if there's something you want to do, find somebody who does it and take them out yeah. to lunch and mm -hmm. tell them you'd like to ask them some questions or find yourself a mentor, either yeah. official mentor, or unofficial mentor. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like Atlas has what one might call a leadership funnel because yes. you're, you're mentoring, you're identifying people who might have leadership potential. You're mm -hmm. looking for the entrepreneurs, the ones who really show initiative, right? Exactly. So that having a leadership funnel makes people feel like there's something to grow into. And that's a nice right. way to retain nurses, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that uh, we were both mm -hmm. thinking the same thing when I was thinking <laughs> about retention and recruiting of nurses, people don't want to feel like they don't have anywhere to go, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I think um, one of the best things we can do is professional development. Um, even if it's just getting a certification, some people, um, you know, I've had mentors, I've mentored other people. Um, I've had people come to me and say, how do you, you know, how do I move up? How do I get to, to the next level? Um, I think we need to definitely offer professional development for our people, both um, just because it's the right thing to do. You know, our first value is integrity. We always do the right thing. It's the right thing to do to make sure that we we provide some type of professional development. You know, we're, we're looking right now at um, bringing in new graduates to our programs, nurse externs to our programs who we hope uh, will certainly become, um, you know, productive members of our nursing workforce and help to continue to fill not only the nursing roles, but also those nursing leadership roles. You know, we do have, um, as does everybody, we do have an aging nursing workforce and we have to make sure that we're, we're you know, we're, we're replacing um, those people that have, um, you know, done their mission in life of being a nurse and, and uh, promoting nursing in general. So That's professional development, yeah, professional development, working with our nursing schools to bring those people in and then, um, you know, helping those people to grow into the future leaders um, yeah. that they want to be. Yeah. 
Excellent. And speaking of nursing schools, just want to ask this question then. What would you say or what do you say to those nursing students who come in, right, externs or whatever, about ambulatory mm-hmm. nursing and ambulatory surgery as a career path? Yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting that you asked that. We're going to be um, we're going to be attending a nursing conference uh, or one of the nursing schools is having a job fair um, later. That uh, excuse me, we're not into March yet, but in middle of March, we're going to be um, our director of education is going to be going over there and talking to some potential nursing students. I think ambulatory surgery is a great place to start. Um, it's it's even every year ambulatory surgery changes, but think about the changes that we've seen in ambulatory surgery just over the last two to three to five years. Um, When I started in ambulatory surgery back in 2008, um, there were much less Medicare approved codes to do an outpatient surgery, right? And over the years, um, payers, you know, Medicare and Medicaid have seen the safety, they've seen the quality, the infection rates, those types of things that ambulatory surgery is able to provide. And um, so we do such a variety of cases. I think we have at least 10 to 12 service lines that we can do. So it's not just going to work. It, you, you certainly can, but you most of our ambulatory surgeries are multi-specialty. We're doing outpatient total joints at this time. You know, Atlas has two cardiovascular centers. That's a relatively newcomer to the ambulatory market. But there's just so many things for nurses to do in outpatient surgery. Um, the, the professional development, the path to leadership, I think could be somewhat shorter in ambulatory surgery. Um, you know, so people are looking to, uh, you know, go down that administrative path. Um, I think it's a good place to start. And there's certainly benefits to ambulatory surgery in terms of no call, no vacations. Um, you know, there's Absolutely. always, there's always the days uh, where you, you know, you work, uh, you know, the difference in ambulatory surgery from, from hospitals is that there isn't a second shift, right. Coming in to replace you. So you do sometimes have long days, but it's offset um, by all the benefits that there is to work in ambulatory surgery. Um, and just the explosion of cases, you know, the more, the more specialties, and the more cases that we do that much more opportunity. Um, um, for nurses to to do different things, um, mm-hmm. different specialties, and different roles. So yeah. uh, we're pretty excited about this upcoming um, this upcoming job fair that we're going to be attending. So that's great, and it sounds like you know Atlas is going to keep growing. You've expanded quite a bit since 2019, right. right? You started out small and lean, and you've you've become more robust, and mm-hmm. yep. you know. We'll see you move into maybe other states like New Mexico or other places, and there'll be a lot of opportunities out there. And mm-hmm. that's, I'm sure, part of the vision as you want to create a sustainable organization. And for those for those nurses who would like to get in touch, they want to check out Atlas either for a career or just to see what you all are up to, where do they go to find you? They can go to Atlas uh, Healthcare just want to make sure I get this right. It's atlashp.com, I believe, is the correct website. And they can, because we have, we have, uh, there's a lot of information too. Um, we have a really robust website at this point in time. There is positions that are available on there. Atlashp.com mm-hmm. is the website that they can go to to take a look at that. And, uh, you know, we, we talk a little bit about our company. We talk a little bit about our leadership. It's a pretty standard website. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's great, but we do have our careers page on there and, uh, it's, it's, we would love to hear from anybody out there that has any interest. Um, I think we're really, really excited about where we're going. You know, you talked about expanding in other States. We certainly are. That's part of the plan here in 2022. 
Um, Atlas has a very robust growth plan. You know, we partner with health systems and, uh, you know, help to manage and, and uh, you know, oversee their surgery centers. So there's a lot of growth coming for Atlas and uh, moving into other states is certainly where we're headed. Um, you know, we've expanded our footprint across, across Arizona. We've now moved into the Tucson market. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've actually been in the Tucson market for about two years now. So we're going to be looking to expand down even south in Tucson and expanding up in Colorado, but then starting to expand out across the country um, is, is uh, in the works for us this That's year. Moving, yeah. yeah, moving on to a lot of growth potential. So very excited to have people. And as I said, uh, you know, very excited to have uh, new graduates, um, extra nurses. We really want to partner with our schools and make sure that we're creating that pipeline. And, uh, you know, I can't believe 20 years has passed now since I've been a nurse. And I think about what I was like as a young nurse. And I had a lot of opportunity and I want to see that um, for the nurses that are coming behind us. Um, it's so important. That. Yeah. yeah, I see you so have, important. it is so important. And I see you have 46 positions in Phoenix, 14 in Glendale, and then you have other positions posted. Mm-hmm. You have 77 hourly full-time positions available right now and 22 PRN. So oh, yeah. you've got quite a bit. So mm-hmm. people should definitely go to Atlas HB and check you out. And yes. before we go charity, I have four questions I've initiated that I'm asking each <sighs> guest at the end of each show. And, um, um, the answers have all been really fascinating. And the first one is how do you define success? I think you define success. Um, personally, I define success in, uh, being, it's going to sound, it's going to sound a little bit, uh, cliche, but I really do define success, uh, by being happy with my, uh, profession. Um, it's very important to me. Um, so when I, when I think about I'm assuming you're asking about personal success. Sure, um, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, personal and professional success are a little bit different, but professional success has always been very important to me. So it's critical um, to love what you do. It mm-hmm. really is because of the amount of time that we spend doing it. Uh, I've had, we, we've all had positions where we didn't love what we were doing, right? We've had positions True. where we do love what we're doing. So for me, defining success is loving what I do. Um, I became a nurse for a reason because I really did want to make a difference in people's lives. And, you know, being a CNO at this point in time, you just have a reach to make a difference in so many people's lives as well. And not just patients, right? We also have uh, an opportunity to make a difference in nurses' lives in physicians' lives and right. uh, other clinical members of our team. So loving what you do and uh, being, you know, being true to the values of what drove you to do what you're doing um, and, and getting satisfaction from that for me is success. Yeah. And speaking of values, uh, I know that you're an avid supporter of a lot of animal rescue organizations and you yep. donate a lot of time to animal welfare causes. So, I mean, that's a form of success in one's life as well as living mm-hmm. your values and doing things that have meaning for you. So I see yeah. that that's part of your, your chosen path in your life. Yeah. It's actually become a very big part of my chosen path. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been an, a- an animal lover, but I've not um, always taken the time to actually go out into the community and work uh, with animals the way that I do today. So um, between my, uh, you know, I, uh, my children are grown at this point in time. So between yeah. my, my job that I love, um, I also work a lot with animals. So that's, it's interesting. Um, I've been glad, you know, I've had a passion for that and to be able now to turn around and give back at this point in time is something that's very, very, uh, deeply meaningful to me. That's lovely. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for mentioning it. Yeah. And the second question is how would you describe one person 
any person who's inspired you in the course of your life. It could be a celebrity, a family member, someone you know, someone you don't know. One person. Mm-hmm. I would describe, uh, it's an interesting question when you think about that one person that's inspired you. Um, I probably would describe that person as authentic, mm-hmm. right? I think authenticity, I think, is very important in people. Um, and I don't know if it's part of being a nurse um, or not. You just have so many exposures to so many uh, different people. Um, but being authentic and knowing that that person, uh, when they say something, they mean what they say. When they say they're going to do something, they, they do it. Um, and I do have a person like that in my life. Um, it's actually professionally speaking, um, which I think is important. I certainly, I have my, you know, my, my personal life, my husband, but um, in my professional life, I think what's really important to me and that this person is to me is authentic. And uh, I feel like I can trust that person when I get advice from them. And um, also I feel like that that person would tell me uh, the truth, uh, you know, in a non-hurtful way, but certainly would, would tell you the truth um, and not tell you what you want to hear. They tell you what you need to hear. So that's good. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Authenticity. Mm -hmm. And um, another question is, is there a book or a movie that's had a major impact on either the way you think or the way you live your life? Um, probably, um, uh, when I think about a book or a movie, um, it's had a major impact. I do have, I do have one. Yeah. And it's a, it's a book, uh, it's a book actually. Um, uh, and it's called crucial conversations. Uh, tools for talking when the stakes are high. Crucial conversations is something that I was given early in my nursing career. And while it sounds immediately upon the hearing the name of it, um, it sounds like it might be more professionally based. It certainly is professionally based, but I have I have had to actually get, um, I've given copies to other people, um, crucial conversations, and I have so many of my pages that are paper, you know, that are uh, paper clipped or highlighted or thumb marked that I go back to um, because I talked about, I've, I've talked about communication quite a bit and how much I feel like that's important. Um, crucial conversations is tools for talking when the stakes are high. That's, that can be in your personal life or your professional life or in your day-to-day, um, you know, you go out to the supermarket or whatever the case may be, right? So crucial conversations is something that I think has been pretty impactful to me and how I relate to others, how I perceive things and how I ultimately have conversations with those people that end up being productive even if they're difficult. Thank you. I'm going to look that one up. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and the last question is, what's one piece of advice, it could be very brief if you like, that you would give your 18-year-old self at this point, whether she would listen or not? (laughs) Uh. I think I probably, I didn't go to nursing school right out of high school. Um, I was about 21 or 22 when I started. I would have, I would have told myself to start then um, as opposed to waiting. Um, If I had to go back uh, when I was 18, I decided to go into the workforce and and check that out for a little bit. So I think I would probably, I probably would have started my nursing career just a little bit sooner. I see. And she Mm -hmm. may or may not have listened, but you know. Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) I can tell her. her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't think it was important at the time, but yeah. uh, it's only a four-year difference. But uh, certainly right. could have been could have been practicing when I was actually starting nursing school. 
I understand. I mm-hmm. didn't become a nurse till I was 32. So okay. I hear yeah. you on that yeah. one. I was close to 30. Yeah. yeah. So that happened. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, Charity, thank you. This has been so lovely. And um, yes. you're obviously doing some great work and you really believe in Atlas. And I hope some people listening might check it out for job opportunities. And sure. I really wish you the best as the organization moves forward. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for having me on the show today. I really appreciated our conversation today. Thank you. And keep taking care of those animals too. I will. I will. You take care. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember, you can learn all about Charity Cox Hayden and Atlas Health Partners at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 363. Remember, if you need personalized holistic career coaching, look no further than nursekeith.com. Mention Charity or Atlas and you can get 15% off your first coaching package. And if you would consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash nursekeith, that would be awesome. You can always listen for free, but a little support goes a long way. The Nurse Keith Show is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Rob Johnston is our producer extraordinaire. He's over at 520R Podcasting. And Mark Cappiespeason is our stalwart social media ringmaster. And before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with one of my very favorite quotes in the world by the musician Robert Fripp. He said, may my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my new friend and friend of the pod, Charity Cox Hayden, saying Arrivederci from Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you, Charity. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we will catch you on the flip side. Mm-hmm.